There is a cave north of Jerusalem on the road headed east. Today, that cave is called Jeremiah's Grotto. And it was from that cave that the weeping prophet Jeremiah penned his lamentation over the fall of the city of Jerusalem. It was the year 586 B.C. Babylon sacked the holy city and burned God's temple to the ground. Jews who survived the siege were forced into exile. In shackles and chains, they were made to evacuate the city and march along this road next to this grotto off to Babylon. Hope had died in Israel. And Jeremiah was called to serve as its chief pallbearer. How tough it was for this man of God to sit in the mouth of that cave and watch the friends that he had grown up with say goodbye to their familiar streets and the songs of the priests and the smell of the sacrifices and the temple worship. Jeremiah witnessed the eviction of God's people from their homeland. No wonder he wept. A thousand years earlier, God had revealed himself to a man named Abram in the heart of Babylon. God made a covenant with Abraham. He would make him a great nation. He would bring him into a new land. His seed would bless the world. Through a covenant that God made with Moses, he prepared the children of Israel to occupy that land. He gave Israel a list of blessings and curses. If Israel obeyed God's law and sacrifices, God would bless them. If they disobeyed God, he would curse them. Leviticus 26 lists among those curses, I will scatter you among the nations. Your land shall be desolate. You are in your enemy's land. Now, as Jeremiah sits in the mouth of that cave, writing and weeping, the heirs of Abraham have come full circle. They're headed back to the land they thought they'd left for good. It's hard to imagine, really, the agony of the moment. Jeremiah, in that cave, along that road, witnessing those sights. Yet in the midst of Jeremiah's weeping, something marvelous happens. He's struck by a thought. As he's writing his dirge, the book of Lamentations, He he interjects a ray of hope in chapter 2. He writes this, This I recall to my mind. Therefore, I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. In the midst of his sorrow, it suddenly hits Jeremiah. In all her failures, God has never given up on Israel. Why would he start now? In fact, it was to Jeremiah that God delivered a glorious new promise, what we call the new covenant. Amazingly, at their lowest of lows, the great God of grace reaches out to his deflated people. He gives to Israel another covenant. Can you believe it? Every time we fall and can't get up, God rescues us with new promises, new terms, new proposals. And this wasn't just a new covenant. It was the new covenant, the last and ultimate promise that God made with man. Jeremiah 31 refers to the new covenant 
as an everlasting covenant. That means that the rest of the Bible and really all of human history is the fulfillment of this covenant. Since it was Jeremiah who saw the nation croak, you know, a person with my sense of humor might be tempted to say, Jeremiah was a bullfrog. <laughs> but you know, it would really be better to say, Jeremiah was a bulldog because he refused to give up hope and faith. Even in the midst of the enemy's siege, as the walls of the city were being breached, God was revealing to Jeremiah a new day for his people Israel. Jeremiah 31 through 33 focuses on this great and new covenant. The new covenant includes three promises. Get them down now. You'll, we'll refer to this off and on throughout the Bible study. Three promises are included in the new covenant. A regathering of Israel to the land God promised Abraham. Second, a regeneration of the people's hearts. <coughs> and third, a reestablishment of the throne of David and the kingdom of God. Now, unfortunately, we can't read all three chapters here in Jeremiah, but let me hit the high points. In chapter 32, God orders Jeremiah to purchase a field. He obeys. He forks over 17 shekels and he signs a deed. But Jeremiah is confused. God is predicting a Babylonian takeover. I mean, Jer Jerusalem is about to be occupied by foreign armies. Why is God asking him to waste his money? I mean, a timeshare in Iraq would make for a better investment property. God answers Jeremiah in chapter 32, verse 37. He says, I will gather them out of all countries where I have driven them in my anger, in my fury, and in great wrath. I will bring them back to this place and I will cause them to dwell safely. In other words, the parcel that Jeremiah purchased was a token of God's promise to regather Israel back to the land. The Jews will return to Israel in Jerusalem and Jeremiah's kin will build on his lot. A return to the land was part of the new covenant. But notice what's next. God promises a regeneration of the people's hearts. Jeremiah 31, verse 33 is where we'll read together. Jeremiah 31, verse 33. There he says, But this is the covenant that I will make with those of the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The law of Moses was written on stone tablets. But under the new covenant, God writes his law on our hearts. His will gets internalized. God embeds it in our very nature. The Spirit of God etches his love into our heart of hearts. You know, Steve Nash is a talented, heady, gutsy basketball player. One of my favorites. Having played a little basketball myself, I appreciate Steve's love and passion for the game. He has great basketball instincts. Now, what if I tried to play basketball like Steve Nash? I watched all his videos and I tried to mimic his actions and his skills. Well, I'm afraid that the effort would be futile. But what if somehow 
I was given Steve Nash's heart. Well, it certainly wouldn't make me a perfect player. I wouldn't be as good as Steve, but I would be a better Sandy, no doubt about it. I mean, sharing Steve's instincts would make me better. I would still have my own reflexes in my own legs that don't jump anymore. I wouldn't have his reflexes or his legs or his peripheral vision, but I would have his heart. And that would take me a long, long way. Understand, a new heart is the miracle of the new covenant. God gives us his heart. Now, we still have our body. That means we won't be perfect. But we receive God's heart. His love and his passion and his desires. He puts us inside us. And that, my friend, takes us a long, long way. We never become flawless, but we certainly get better. You see, the new covenant changes a person from the inside out. We become righteous, not by watching the how-to videos or by trying to mimic some external standard, but by receiving God's heart. He puts it in us. The Holy Spirit's purity and power makes us better. This is the new covenant. And because of our new heart, the new covenant gives us a new part to play a new role in God's purposes. Notice verse 34. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. Understand this. Under the new covenant, we all become priests. That's incredible. Now, at first, being a priest might not excite you too much especially if you grew up Catholic. As a happily married man with a foxy wife, I mean, the last thing I really aspire to be is a priest, at least in the Catholic sense. But that's not the kind of priest that Jeremiah has in view. You see, the Jews, they were married priests. They had married priests. But they were of a special tribe. Only certain men at certain times could enter God's presence and could know God. But under the new covenant, all this changes. Everyone can now assume this role. Under the new covenant, all calls to God are now dialed direct. You don't need a go-between. Can the confessional, burn the booth. All God's people are now priests. You can go to him now personally, yourself, whenever and wherever you choose. And finally, along with this new heart and the new part, we also get a new start. Check out the next phrase. He says, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Wow. You know, the Mosaic Covenant dealt with sin in a limited, superficial way. The law revealed sin. Then it covered sin, the sacrifices covered sin, and then the blessings and curses motivated us not to sin, but the old covenant never addressed the cause of our sin. It could never eradicate the selfish tendency of our hearts. But this is where the new covenant excels. We get a new heart. As an everlasting covenant, the new covenant provides us a permanent solution to our sin. Rather than just cover over our sin, it abolishes sin. It blots it out from God's memory. He doesn't even think about it anymore. Once upon a time, there was a lady 
in the church who kept coming up to her pastor with messages from God. Well, the pastor was a little skeptical. And so one day he told her, he said, Ma'am, he says, when I was in college, I, I committed a horrible sin. I, I've always been ashamed. So the next time you talk to God, ask him what my sin was, and if he tells you, then I'll believe that you get messages from God. Well, weeks went by without the lady ever bothering the pastor with another message from God, and so he thought that maybe he had proved his point. And so one day he, he happened to see her, and he mentioned to her, he says, well, I suppose that God really doesn't speak to you since he didn't reveal to you my sin. Well, the lady fired back. She says, oh, yes, God does speak to me. But when I asked God about your horrible sin, God told me he no longer remembers what it was. And that is a message from God. That's the new covenant. God's forgiveness is full and forever. He remembers our sin no more. Well, the new covenant, it promises a return to the land. And then a regeneration of our hearts. And then the reestablishment of the kingdom to Israel and the throne to David. Now from his grotto, Jeremiah saw the Jewish king, Zedekiah, the descendant of David, hauled off into captivity. And what the Babylonians did to King Zedekiah was so cruel. They slaughtered his sons before his eyes, and then they took a hot poker and they plucked out his eyes so that the last sight the man saw was the death of his sons. How cruel is that? Jeremiah understood that this threatened the Davidic covenant, that God promised David that he would always have a son sitting on the throne of his kingdom. Now Zedekiah and family had been wiped out. With the Babylonian victory, it seemed that the covenant had been broken. But in Jeremiah 33, verse 15, God refocuses his promise to David he says, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And at that very moment, David didn't lack a man because Messiah was waiting in heaven. You know, it's interesting how the New Testament begins. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Jesus hailed from David's stock. Jesus was an heir to the throne of David. Though Zedekiah's lineage came to an abrupt end, another branch sprouted from David's family tree. Jesus was of the house and lineage of David and thus heir to his throne. You know, the new covenant promises that Messiah will lay claim to all of God's promises. That Israel will be an everlasting global kingdom that will rule the world in righteousness. In fact, God closes Jeremiah chapter 33 by saying, As sure as the day follows the night, God will fulfill the promises of the new covenant. The sun will fail to rise in the morning before the blood relatives of Abraham fail to return to the real land of Canaan and be ruled over by an actual son of David. And not only did Jeremiah predict the new covenant, so did other Hebrew prophets. 
Whereas Jeremiah wrote among the survivors there in Jerusalem, Ezekiel, he lived in the, with the exiles that had been taken to Babylon. But he too prophesied of the new covenant. Ezekiel 36 verse 24, I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. What's that? That's the regathering back to the land. After the regathering, Ezekiel mentions the spiritual regeneration. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a soft, tender heart. I will put my spirit with you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes. That's the regeneration. But then in Ezekiel 37, verse 22, the prophet mentions the reestablishment of the kingdom. He says, I will make them one nation. One king shall be king over them. David, my servant, shall be king. Notice the order. God regathers the people to the land. He regenerates their hard hearts and makes them sensitive to God. And then... He reestablishes the kingdom ruled by the son of David. Now, Ezekiel 37 begins with a famous vision. The prophet sees a valley of dry bones. But suddenly, these bones start rattling. They start coming together. The arm bone gets connected to the shoulder bone and the leg bone gets connected to the hip bone and you know how the song goes. Well, after God assembles the skeletons, then muscle and flesh begin to cover them. But they still have no breath, no, no spiritual life. And this is Israel today. Jews have and are returning to their ancient homeland. And they have muscle. They've gained muscle since they've been back. In fact, if the U.S. keeps depleting our military, we might have to call on Israel one day for help. I saw this t-shirt in Jerusalem. America, don't worry. Israel is behind you. As in Jesus' day, today Israel is a miracle. Dry bones have assembled. A strong nation now exists, but there's still no breath. No spiritual life. And before the kingdom can come to Israel, God's spirit has to invade the people's hearts. The spiritual regeneration is a prerequisite for the coming of Messiah and God's kingdom. Now you see, this was exactly the scenario in the first century AD. Under men like Zerubbabel and Ezra and then Nehemiah, many of the Jews came home from Babylon. And Israel grew muscle in the land. They rebuilt Jerusalem. They, they reconstructed the temple. Israel had been regathered, and they were expecting the coming of the kingdom. You see, this was Nicodemus' mindset in John chapter 3. You remember Nicodemus? Nicodemus was the scholar who approached Jesus by night. It was the first ever Nick at night. <laughs> Nick was this respected Jewish scholar, schooled in the prophecies of Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the other Old Testament prophets. And Nicodemus, he was thinking new covenant. He had kingdom expectations. Understand his logic. Israel had been regathered to the land. 
in his mind, the renewed zeal for the law that had been exemplified in the movement of the Pharisees, this was proof of the regeneration, the new heart promised by the new covenant, according to, at least in his thinking. You see, in Nicodemus's mind and in the Jewish thinking of the day, all that remained in the new covenant was for Messiah to overthrow Rome and establish his kingdom on the earth. Jesus knew his mindset, and he answers his question before he even asks it. Jesus looks at him and he says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Realize this was a lesson in the new covenant. Jesus is saying, recall the three stages of the new covenant. The regathering to the land and the reestablishment of the kingdom are the bookends. But in between, there is a spiritual revival. A regeneration of the heart that has to take place among God's people. You see, Nicodemus had mistaken religious zeal for regeneration. And Jesus is in essence saying to him, hold your horses, Nicodemus. You need to rethink what you're calling a new heart. For self-righteousness isn't God's righteousness. You see, Jesus warns Nicodemus in his desire to see the coming kingdom, don't skip over the regeneration. A new heart is more than just moralism or legalism, or religion. Did you know you can be moral, or legalistic, or religious? You can major on the do's and don'ts. Man, you can mind your P's and Q's. You can dot your I's and cross your T's and still be sinful to the core. Did you know that? You know, religious people are often the most proud. In fact, the Jews, they were proud of their pedigree. They were the children of Abraham, and Abraham was the chosen of God. They thought that alone made them righteous before God. But Jesus warns them, it's not just about your first birth. You must be born again. So what if you come from the right side of the tracks and keep your little nose clean and play by all the rules and follow the formulas? Hey, rather than doing it for God, you could just be doing it To make yourself look good. Motivation is what matters to God. Where's the love? You see, a new heart spawned a love for God and a love for others. The Pharisees were religion without love. Clean on the outside, but ah, filthy and dirty on the inside. Jesus said, you must be born again. That was more than just turning over a new leaf. That meant more than just mending your ways. That's not just reformation. That's transformation. Understand, the new birth is becoming something different than you were before. Take a pig. You can dress him up like a little boy. And you can treat him like a little boy. And you can feed that pig like a little boy. But guess what? He's still a pig. He's not a little boy. And the first time he gets around a mud puddle, he's going to jump right in. Trust me. You can't betray your nature. You can't be something that you're not. And the same is true spiritually. That's why to follow Jesus, you've got to be reborn. 
You need a heart transplant. God takes out your defiant nature and he replaces it with a compliant nature. And to help Nicodemus understand this, Jesus takes him back to the Old Testament. He explains to him in the words of Ezekiel, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Again, Jesus quotes Ezekiel 36. God will sprinkle clean water and put a new spirit within you. The new covenant produces a new person. He says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Notice, flesh is flesh. In other words, just trying harder, just turning over a new leaf, just you doing more will never be enough. Our own goodness is never good enough. That's why we have to be born of the Spirit. We need to become something different than we were before. God alone can purify us from the inside out. Jesus ends his conversation with a rebuke of Nicodemus. He tells him, he's a, he tells this scholar, he, he says that you should have known these truths, Nicodemus. He says, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Well, Jesus has taken the teacher to school. And here was the point that the master was making to Nicodemus. The new covenant wasn't ready to be revealed or to be fulfilled. It had been revealed, but it wasn't ready to be fulfilled. Not yet. Messiah won't sit on the throne of David. He won't set up God's earthly kingdom until spiritual revival comes first to Israel. Before God's kingdom comes tangibly, it first comes spiritually. Remember Luke 17, the Pharisee, he asked Jesus, Hey, when will this kingdom of God come, this kingdom you've been talking about? Jesus replied, The kingdom does not come with outward observation. The kingdom of God is within you. In other words, you won't see a political kingdom until God's king rules in your heart and the Jews are born again. This is exactly what Jesus said to the nation at the end of Matthew chapter 23. He's there on the Mount of Olives. You remember the story. He's looking out over Jerusalem and he's seeing off into their future. And through tears, he predicts the destruction of Jerusalem. In fact, he quotes Psalm 118. Your house is left desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Realize what Jesus is saying. He won't return to establish God's kingdom on earth until Israel is ready to welcome him as their Messiah. When they sing Psalm 118 and mean it, then he'll come to rule over the earth in righteousness. Revelation 19 fast forwards to that moment. Jesus is on a war horse. He's ready to come to earth to judge the wicked and to establish his forever kingdom and tatted down his thigh is a title. It says, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Hey, that's how we will see Jesus when He is revealed in all of His glory. But right now, though Jesus is King, He's the King of hearts. You see, the new covenant required that the Messiah comes to rule over us spiritually before He reigns politically. All this was in Jesus' mind the night before his crucifixion. Understand, Jesus didn't just come into the world, come to that night, 
just to gain our forgiveness. Jesus was far more ambitious. In the upper room with his peeps, our Lord Jesus took the Passover cup and he gave it brand new meaning. He invited his disciples both then and now, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood, notice, of the new covenant. Drink this cup, he says, and you show your gratitude for a new heart. You celebrate your priesthood in the intimacy you now have with God. You rejoice that your sins are blotted out forever and you toast your eternity in God's kingdom all when you drink this cup. And as with all God's covenants, the new covenant is dedicated with blood. Oh, Jesus held up a cup of wine in his hand, but the blood was on his mind. You remember when Moses ratified the old covenant, he took the hot blood of a bull and he sprinkled it out over the heads of the people. Now when you enter the new covenant, the blood of Jesus gets spiritually sprinkled on our hearts. Hebrews 10 verse 22 tells us to draw near in faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. The communion cup we're going to drink in a few moments speaks of this glorious new covenant. So let me summarize the new covenant. Israel gets regathered to the land. The hearts of the people get regenerated. Then King Jesus returns to earth to end man's rebellion and reestablish David's throne in God's kingdom. Now it's time to play the game of what if. I'm going to blow your mind. What if Israel as a nation had received Jesus as their Messiah in 32 AD. How would the dominoes have fallen? Israel regathered, was regathered. They got reborn. Next comes what? The kingdom. Would Jesus have returned in the first century? I believe so. At least I believe that's what the early church believed. After Jesus' resurrection and before his ascension, he hung out on the earth for 40 days. It was Q&A time with Jesus. And guess what question the disciples ask? Acts 1 verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Why that question? Well, connect the dots. I mean, the kingdom was next on the new covenant checklist. Regathered. Check, we're back in the land. Regeneration, check. Well, at least the disciples have been born again. All that was left in the minds of the disciples was the coming of the kingdom. Jesus' answer to them is interesting. He says, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses. Notice Jesus didn't say God's kingdom was right around the corner, but neither did he say it wasn't. You could call his answer a definite maybe. Basically, he says timing is the Father's business. Power is the Spirit's business. Witness is your business. So don't stick your nose in anybody else's business. But when the disciples preached, trust me, they preached as if they believed the kingdom and Jesus' second coming were on the immediate horizon at Pentecost. The church has just started. The Spirit's just been poured out upon the church. Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and in the power of the Holy Spirit, 
he quotes Joel chapter 2. Joel is a prophecy, not just about the Spirit being poured out on Israel, but Joel prophesies about the events that will occur in the end times. He prophesies the ultimate judgments on the earth. He says, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Why does Peter bring that up at the very outset of the church? Well, in Peter's mind, Jesus had gone to heaven for a few days of R&R. But it wouldn't be long before he came back to punish the evil men who'd crucified him. Once Israel received the Messiah, he would then return and turn on the wicked Romans. Hey, a few days later, in Acts chapter 3, Peter preaches again to the Jews. And listen to his invitation. He says, repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that He may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things. Do you hear what he's saying? In essence, Peter tells them, repent so God will send Jesus and He'll restore all things. In his mind, the conversion of Israel would have brought Jesus back right then and launched the restoration of everything sin had defiled. Peter was preaching in the temple and he was calling out the Jewish leaders and he was offering to Israel times of refreshing the kingdom age. Our salvation guarantees us the same one day. But Peter's offer to the Jewish nation was for that day. Perhaps this is what Peter meant in 2 Peter 3 verse 12 when he spoke of hastening or speeding up the coming of the day of the Lord. How do you speed up the coming of the day of the Lord? Well, Peter thought that if the nation Israel was born again, then the kingdom would have come at that time. And well, it might. People say, but what about the rapture and the Antichrist and, and the one world government and the desecration of the temple and his demand to be worshipped and all that the Bible predicts will happen before Jesus' second coming? Well, history reveals that ancient Rome had parallel fulfillments for all the above. Roman rule was global. Any of the emperors would have made a dandy Antichrist. An abomination in the temple was even in the works. In 40 AD, the emperor Caligula had dispatched a legion of soldiers to Palestine with a statue of his likeness. Orders had already been given to erect that statue in the temple's Holy of Holies and require the Jews to worship that image, the event that's spoken of in Revelation 13. The only reason it failed was that Caligula died while the statue was en route and the ship turned back. Imagine though the great what if. Peter preaches on Pentecost. The nation Israel repents. The rapture occurs at that moment. The world is plunged into seven years of great tribulation and Jesus returns to make all things new in or around 40 AD. Now you don't have to agree with me. And I know some of this is speculation. But I believe that if the Jews had accepted the offer of the new covenant... God was prepared to set in motion the end-time prophecies and establish His kingdom at that time. Instead, Israel rejected the covenant that Jesus made with His own blood. 
and sentenced herself to remain under the curse of the Mosaic Covenant. This was an epic tragedy for the Jews. But it was a very, very good turn of events for you and me, the Gentiles. For Israel's unbelief became an opportunity for the Gentiles. Now last week we talked about the amazing prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. The chapter puts Messiah on the clock. It predicts the very day when Jesus would appear to Israel. If you weren't here last week, grab a CD this morning. Make sure you download the podcast. You need to hear it. According to Daniel chapter 9, 70 weeks of seven years are set aside for the nation Israel. And six purposes are to be accomplished in that 490-year period. Now, if you go back and read Daniel 9 carefully, you'll see that, the only, that only one of those six objectives has actually been fulfilled. On the cross of Calvary, Jesus made reconciliation for iniquity. But he's not yet made an end to sins. He's not yet brought in everlasting righteousness or sealed up vision and prophecy. According to Daniel, 483 years occurred from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem's walls to the coming of the Messiah to Israel. That prophecy was fulfilled to the very day when Jesus made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. But after the first 69 weeks... Messiah is to be cut off or executed, and that happened just a few days later in 32 AD with Jesus' crucifixion. Daniel 9 mentions another event that occurs after the first 69 weeks. The fall of Jerusalem came 38 years later in 70 AD. The crucifixion and the fall of Jerusalem came after the first 69 weeks, but before the 70th week of seven years. That means there is a gap between the 69 weeks and the 70th weeks. There's a gap in the prophecy. There is an unspecified period of time that exists between the coming of Messiah to Israel and the final seven years when Jesus will return and right all wrongs. As Daniel puts it, finish the transgression or literally snuff out man's rebellion. This final seven years of history is what the Bible calls the Great Tribulation. It's the final judgment when God shakes all that can be shaken. Global cataclysms will rock the planet. You can read about this in Revelation 6 and in the chapters there that follow. Two goals get accomplished in that time. A wicked world gets punished, but Israel will be purified. In fact, It's the fulfillment of these end-time events and judgments that finally opens the eyes of Israel. Zechariah 12 verse 10 talks about their awakening. It tells us that when Jesus returns to the earth, Israel will suddenly be ready for the new covenant. He says, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Romans 11 verse 26 predicts that in the end all Israel will be saved. In other words, every Jew alive at the time will believe in Jesus. Their hearts will be regenerated. They will enter into the new covenant and then Jesus will come to establish his kingdom. So let's put it all together. 
Jesus came to initiate a new covenant with Israel. He paid for it on the cross and he offered it to Israel by his apostles. But the Jews rejected that offer. Jesus, though, is still waiting for the Jews to accept his terms and to receive a new heart. And when Israel bites, when they finally believe, Jesus will return to end the revolt that started in Eden and set up his kingdom on planet earth. You see, right now the dry bones have reassembled. Even flesh and muscle has been attached. But the breath of the Spirit is still absent. For the most part, the Jews remain in unbelief. Imagine God's dilemma now. He's got this good covenant, but no takers. He's got a great covenant. It's all put in in motion, but no takers. I mean, it's like the single guy. He's planning this ultimate date night. Starry sky, soft music, candlelight dinner on the rooftop, luxurious setting. He hired Emerald to do the cooking. I mean, it's beautiful. But his date backs out at the last minute. What's he going to do? Let it all go to waste? Not hardly. He's going to pull out his little black book and he's going to call his second choice. And his third choice and even his fourth choice if need be. And this is exactly what God did. Literally, this is what he did. Don't be offended now that you're God's second choice, but you are. Paul told the Romans that the gospel comes to the Jew first, then to the Gentiles. And that's anybody who's not a Jew. After the rebellion at Babel, God's plan for redemption became a family business. Abraham and sons. Through Israel, he would win back the world. And now he's doing just that, winning back the world. This is the mystery not seen in God's previous plans. All of the covenants from Abraham to Moses to David, they targeted Jews. Even the new covenant was intended for Israel until they rejected God's offer. And now in His grace, God opens up the party to us miserable Gentiles. That's what He does. Remember the parable Jesus told about the man hosting the banquet? Everyone he invited had an excuse why they couldn't come. And so he told his servants to bring in the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. Now, don't be offended, but that's God's description of us. I mean, we're the ones nobody wanted, the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. But God included us. Hey, don't be too proud to think of yourself among the down and out in need of grace. I mean, the people God rejects are the folks who think they deserve his love. The proud and the self-righteous are the people who miss out. When the Jews rejected the new covenant, God opened it up to the whosoever wills. Yo, I can be a whosoever. That's me, man. I'm a whosoever will. I'm not too proud to be a candidate for grace. I don't mind receiving blessings that I can never earn. As a matter of fact, I'm the only blessings I'm ever going to receive. I'll jump at the chance to enter into such an amazing covenant. And you see, that's what God is hoping. God has always targeted Gentiles for salvation. But now, while he waits on the Jews, he is actively pursuing us. That's amazing. 
God's plan today is to take Gentiles from all nations and tribes and races and bring them together into one new covenant community. Jews and Gentiles as one people. I think God is practicing for heaven. And He calls it the church. And that's what we'll discuss in our final installment of Connecting the Dots. In two weeks, we'll look at the new covenant and the church. So there we have it. Let's get the uh, worship team back up. We're going to have worship and communion in our remaining few minutes.